Last Thursday, representatives from around the world met at The Hague to hear a singular court case. Please be seated. The sitting is open. The court meets today to hear the oral observations submitted by the Republic of South Africa in the case concerning application of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in the Gaza Strip, South Africa versus Israel. On the world stage of the United Nations, South Africa accused Israel of committing genocide in its ongoing war in Gaza. And last week, both countries were called in to make their cases before the judges of the International Court of Justice. I solemnly declare that I will perform my duties and exercise my powers as a judge honorably, faithfully, impartially, and conscientiously. Adil, is it fair to say that the world is watching Israel right now? Absolutely. Um, the world is watching Israel, it's watching Gaza, and it's watching the International Court of Justice. Adil Hawk is a professor of international law at Rutgers University. He studies the rules and regulations surrounding war and armed conflict. I think that this is uh, the first time in my lifetime that there's been so much public attention to the role of international law in potentially resolving disputes as a kind of method of last resort. This week, the war in Gaza hit the 100-day mark. Months after the first headlines, the bodies continue to pile up. More than 24,000 according to the latest estimates. Now, it's up to the UN to decide if that level of mass death amounts to a genocide. Otto calls this court case a method of last resort because the UN has already tried to get Israel to call off its campaign. The Security Council voted twice to order a humanitarian ceasefire, but the United States vetoed the measure each time. So the International Court of Justice is the last institution in the international legal system that could potentially issue a legally binding order to Israel to suspend its military operations or accept a ceasefire uh, before it is too late. Even if the ICJ finds that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza, it's not a guarantee that the war would end. What a ruling like that would do is call on the international community to step in. This would be tantamount to finding that every state in the world has a legal obligation to take action to try to bring uh, this war to an end. So clearly Israel feels that something is at stake here, whether it's simply reputational damage or potentially something more. Today on the show, what makes a war a genocide? I'm Mary C. Curtis, filling in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. To some observers, it might seem curious that South Africa, of all countries, is the one bringing the case against Israel. So could you give a little context there? The connection between South Africa and Israel and the Palestinians is a complex one that goes back many decades. Uh, So Israel actually supported the apartheid government in South Africa. And as a result, South Africans, Black South Africans and Palestinians have for a long time felt that their struggles for self-determination, for freedom, for dignity are intertwined. 
And Nelson Mandela also saw some solidarity with Yasser Arafat, the late leader of the Palestinians. Absolutely. Um, you know, th- uh, it was an era in which there were struggles against colonialism, against occupation, against apartheid. And these were viewed uh, by those uh, seeking national liberation as different sides of the same struggle, different sides of a struggle for self-determination and against its forcible denial. And so for that reason, it is not too surprising that South Africa would be the state of all the states in the world to bring this case to the ICJ. So South Africa is alleging that Israel is currently committing genocide in Gaza. That's a really weighty accusation. So I want to be specific about what that means. How does international law define genocide? And what precisely is South Africa accusing Israel of? Sure. So uh, genocide is defined in two parts. There are the constituent acts of genocide, which include killing members of a group, causing grave physical or mental harm to members of a group, or creating conditions of life calculated to uh, destroy the group. The second element is what distinguishes genocide from war crimes and even crimes against humanity. And this is the specific intent to destroy a national, racial, religious, or ethnic group. This is what is known as the specific intent requirement of genocide, and it is extremely narrow and extremely difficult to prove. So the hearings begin. South Africa has the floor. How do they use their time? So South Africa does uh, a few things. It opens by contextualizing the dispute, framing the dispute in a way that is favorable to the narrative that they want to tell. And that narrative is one of prolonged occupation, oppression, dehumanization. The application places Israel's genocidal acts and omissions within the broader context of Israel's 75-year apartheid, 56-year occupation, and 16-year siege imposed on the Gaza Strip a siege which itself has been described by the director of UNRWA affairs in Gaza as a silent killer of people. The second thing they did was they showed the pattern of conduct. There are three or four core components of this pattern of conduct. The first is the complete siege that Israel imposed on Gaza on October 9th, so two days into the war. The second component is the uh, evacuation order uh, that forcibly displaced around a million Gazans from the north to the south, because that really created the conditions of overcrowding, poor sanitation, uh, no shelter, that is part of the reason why so many Palestinians now face famine and disease. And the last component is the bombing campaign, which not only killed over 20,000 civilians, but left most of Gaza uninhabitable and in particular destroyed the medical and healthcare infrastructure uh, of Gaza. And at the very end of South Africa's presentation on this pattern of conduct, they imply that, look, if you know that a course of action will result in catastrophic harm and you go ahead and do it anyway, It must be plausible to infer that this is something you intended to do. The South African team also took it a step further, pointing out that we don't need to infer Israel's genocidal intent. You can hear it loud and clear in the speeches from Israeli leaders. They emphasize that this extraordinary thing about this case 
is this string of statements from Israeli officials, military leaders, members of parliament that indicate a kind of dehumanizing and eliminationist rhetoric uh, toward Gazans. The deputy speaker of the Knesset, Israel's parliament, has called for the erasure of the Gaza Strip from the face of the earth. The defense force agrees. These statements are extraordinary. We don't expect to see anything like this in uh, warfare, and certainly not this volume of statements along these lines. Prime Minister Netanyahu, in his address to the Israeli forces on 28 October 2023, preparing for the invasion of Gaza, urged the soldiers to remember what Amalek has done to you. This refers to the biblical command by God to Saul for the retaliatory destruction of an entire group of people known as the Amalekites, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. And it looks like from the actions of Israeli soldiers, they're saying that they got the message? That's right. And this is a key part of South Africa's case, because Israel argued that these statements, while um, troubling, were taken out of context. They were ambiguous. But South Africa showed videos to the court of soldiers on the ground in Gaza, repeating, chanting, singing uh, these statements of uh, dehumanization. The prime minister's invocation of Amalek is being used by soldiers to justify the killing of civilians, including children. These are the soldiers repeating the inciting words of their prime minister. States have both a duty not to engage in genocide, but also a duty to prevent genocide. And if Israeli soldiers on the ground are acting with genocidal intent, those actions are attributable to Israel, and Israel is responsible for them. During that hearing on Thursday, South African representatives also brought up other countries and conflicts where the ICJ has found evidence of genocide. What was their intention when they did that? South Africa wants to tell the court, convince the court that, look, we're not asking you to do anything extraordinary or novel. We're just asking you to apply the legal framework that you've applied in other cases. Madam President, members of the court, if the indication of provisional measures was justified on the facts in those cases I have cited, how could it not be here in a situation of much greater severity where the imminent risk of re irreparable harm is so much greater? And to that legal argument, they also made a very powerful moral argument because the South African representatives argued that to fail to apply the same legal framework here would be in effect to devalue Palestinian lives relative to the lives of members of other groups where the court has taken action in the past. So what kind of outcome is South Africa seeking here? So if the delegation uh, convinces the court that its claims are plausible, that there's a real risk of genocide, and that um, there is an urgent need for the court to intervene, then they're essentially asking for three types of what are called provisional measures. These are basically interim orders, sort of like a, a temporary injunction. So one group of these measures uh, involves things like preserving evidence and cooperating with uh, UN and other fact finders. Uh, very straightforward. 
The second uh, group of requests has to do with humanitarian aid, uh, basically ordering Israel to allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza. The big request, uh, the big ask that South Africa is making is that the court order Israel to immediately suspend military operations in Gaza. And this request is based on an identical uh, order that uh, the court issued in the Ukraine versus Russia case, uh, ordering Russia to immediately suspend its military operations in Ukraine. The whole world is waiting with bated breath to see what the court will do. Will it take that dramatic step and give effect to the will of the international community that so far has been obstructed by uh, the veto of the United States and the Security Council? If any military operation, no matter how carefully it's carried out, is carried out pursuant to an intention to destroy a people in whole or in part, it violates the the Genocide Convention and it must stop. And that is why all military operations capable of violating the Genocide Convention must cease. After the break, we hear from Israel. The court meets this morning to hear the State of Israel present its single round of oral argument on the request for the indication of provisional measures submitted by the Republic of South Africa on 29 December 2023. On Friday morning, second day of the hearings, it's the Israelis' turn to make their case. How do they start their arguments? Israel begins by alluding to the history of the Jewish people with respect to the crime of genocide. The fact that many Israelis either are Holocaust survivors or children or grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Given the Jewish people's history and its foundational texts, It is not surprising that Israel was among the first states to ratify the Genocide Convention without reservation and to incorporate its provisions in its domestic legislation. For some, the promise of never again for all peoples is a slogan. For Israel, it is the highest moral obligation. The second thing that the Israeli representative opens by saying is that the real genocide in this case was committed by Hamas on October 7th, that the brutality of Hamas's attack, the killing of Israeli civilians, taking hostages, committing rape and sexual assault, torture, that these indicate uh, much more strongly a genocidal intent. All told, some 1,200 people were butchered that day more than 5,500 maimed, and some 240 hostages abducted, including infants, entire families, persons with disabilities, and Holocaust survivors, some of whom have since been executed, many of whom have been tortured, sexually abused, and starved in captivity. And essentially, they killed as many Israelis as they could, and that is the real genocide here. And they play video, audio. They really want to give the court a visceral sense of what went on. Absolutely. And again, this goes back to uh, framing your case as a lawyer uh, in a way that supports the narrative that you want to present to the court. South Africa said that the context of this case is occupation. 
Israel wants to say, no, the context of this case is October 7th. The annihilationist language of Hamas's charter is repeated regularly by its leaders with the goal, in the words of one member of Hamas's political bureau, of the cleansing of Palestine, of the filth of the Jews. Everything we have done since that day was a response to that day. And that is meant to support their argument that their intent is only to defeat Hamas and not to destroy the Palestinians of Gaza as a group. Israel also invokes self-defense. What's the argument they're trying to make here? So there are essentially two arguments. One is is simply a factual argument. They're arguing that their true intention is to defeat Hamas and not to destroy the Palestinians of Gaza. The second argument that they're trying to make is that even if the court finds plausible South Africa's claims, that the court should not order Israel to immediately suspend its military operations in Gaza, because doing so would impair Israel's right of self-defense that Hamas is still firing rockets into Israel. They still hold uh, over 100 uh, hostages in captivity for over 100 days. And it would be unfair and disproportionate to demand that Israel stop fighting when the court does not have the jurisdiction to order Hamas to stop fighting. The applicant, by its request, seeks to thwart Israel's inherent right to defend itself, to let Hamas not just get away with its murder, literally, but render Israel defenseless as Hamas continues to commit it. Because the court only has jurisdiction over states, it cannot tell non-state actors what to do, and so it cannot demand that Hamas observe a ceasefire. And the South Africans say, well, this is just an unfortunate limitation of the court's jurisdiction, but the court should do what it can and order Israel to immediately suspend military operations, while Israel is saying, No, if you can't issue a balanced order, uh, then you shouldn't issue any order at all. It seems like Israel's case boils down to this is war, people are going to die, but that doesn't mean that there's genocide going on. Is that how you heard it? Absolutely, absolutely. Israel made the argument that intense urban warfare against a non-state adversary that is deeply embedded in uh, civilian population and densely populated uh, cities and towns will always involve a shocking level of death and destruction, but that alone does not indicate genocidal intent. Uh, They want to say that far from genocide, uh, Israel is uh, lawfully exercising its right of self-defense in full compliance with international humanitarian law, uh, as implausible as that might seem to many. When the cannons roar in Gaza, the law is not silent. This has been the case since Israel's establishment in 1948, the same year the Genocide Convention was adopted. Israel's commitment to the rule of law has remained steadfast throughout our history, despite the complex challenges we face as a nation. So both sides have had the chance to make their cases. Now what happens? Do they take a vote? That's right. So the judges will retire to decide the first question of whether South Africa's claims are plausible and then decide which of these requested provisional measures the court is willing to order. That could take two weeks. Uh, It could take two months. The expectation of most international lawyers is that the court will act fairly quickly because of the urgency of the humanitarian crisis. But a verdict on the question of genocide could take longer, right? 
Absolutely. Uh, International Court of Justice cases can drag on for years. There are many procedural steps uh, between now and a final judgment. Um, So yes, right now, South Africa's overwhelming priority is to get these provisional measures in place, particularly one ordering Israel to suspend military operations. That's really the urgent priority for South Africa right now. But here's a sort of elephant in the room. The ICJ is tasked with coming to a decision in this case. But if they do decide that it's possible genocide is being committed in Gaza, do they have the power to punish Israel or even enforce a decision? So provisional measures are legally binding. So if Israel defies the court, it will be violating international law on that basis alone. And should the case proceed, the court could um, hold Israel responsible for violating these provisional measures. All of that does um, depend, however, on Israel continuing to participate in the proceedings, uh, continuing to defend itself, even if it defies the court's orders, uh, and ultimately deciding whether or not to um, uh, issue whatever compensation, reparation, or satisfaction the court orders them to, to produce. But even if they send measures like sanctions to the Security Council, isn't it likely the U.S. or another ally would veto them? Absolutely. Um, I think the United States uh, has shown very consistently that it is supporting Israel's military campaign no matter what. So as you said, it's likely going to be a long time before the ICJ reaches any final decision about whether Israel has committed genocide in Gaza or not. But just speculate with me for a bit. What kind of impact could a decision like that have? So the impact would be tremendous uh, because it would be an example of the court finding a uh, a very powerful state, uh, a nuclear weapon state, uh, responsible for uh, what many perceive to be the most serious crime under international law. That said, there is a concern that the focus on genocide could distract both the public uh, and others from other violations of international law, and that would be a mistake. Genocide is a very serious crime, uh, but so is the use of starvation as a method of warfare. Uh, So is forcible displacement of a population. So there are other international crimes that are potentially at play here other than genocide. And it's very important that we not lose sight of those and focus exclusively on this very narrowly defined crime of genocide. Thank you, Otto, for coming on What Next? Thanks for having me. Otto Hawk is a professor of law at Rutgers University. He's also the author of Law and Morality at War. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharme. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast, filling in for Mary Harris. Find me on X at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.